0: Before we dive into today's episode, the upcoming segments involve discussions relating to weight, mental health, and eating disorders. These topics may be triggering to some individuals, so please prioritize your well-being and listen with care.
1: If you're like us and spend a bit too much time online and or watching TV, you've probably heard of Ozempic. Ozempic is a medication that was developed for diabetes management, but it's recently received a lot of attention for its off-label use as a weight loss drug. Our episode team was interested in understanding Ozempic and its popularization, and we quickly realized that it's really impossible to talk about the rise in Ozempic use without exploring common biases and conceptions about weight and health in society.
0: Our understanding of weight loss does not exist in a vacuum and is shaped by the perceived relationship to health, body ideals, and the media we consume. All of those things play into our opinions and perceptions about weight loss. In this episode, we explore the concepts of weight stigma and anti fat bias in the era of Ozempic. I'm Noor. And I'm Hannah. Welcome to episode 120 of Raw Talk Podcast.
1: First, we spoke to Ali Eberhardt, who is a registered dietitian and host of the Let Us Eat Cake podcast. We discussed anti-fat bias, the relationship between weight and health, and the impact of ozempic popularization on the treatment for people with eating disorders.
2: So my name is Ali Eberhardt, I'm a registered dietitian, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I work in the Provincial Adult Tertiary Specialized Eating Disorders Program in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, we're the Provincial Center for Eating Disorders in D.C. Uh, for adults. Um, and I've worked in this program since 2010, which is in- very shocking to me because I still feel like I'm in my first year. Uh, so yeah, um, I've been working in eating disorders almost exclusively for my career. I also have a private practice. That I work in, um, working with people with eating disorders, disordered eating, and just trying to heal their relationship with food and their bodies. And I also co-host a podcast, uh, where we tackle topics such as this or, um, anything kind of related to the anti-diet, you know, weight inclusivity and, and intuitive eating sphere. Thank you so
1: much. And thank you again for being here today. And. I think your professional expertise and your podcast speak a lot to the things that we're hoping to discuss. So just to really set our topic up, I was wondering if you could explain the meaning of fat phobia and talk a bit about how it manifests in society.
2: So I prefer to use the phrase anti-fat bias. Um, The reason being, like, I think that, you know, a lot of the time with kind of like stigma and and systems of oppression like we kind of like decenter the onus on each of us kind of understanding our implicit bias and kind of understanding how these you know ideas about other human beings came to be and kind of understanding what makes us feel uncomfortable about these topics so um you know anti fat bias really is the idea that certain bodies um aren't as deserving or aren't as you know um aren't aren't safe to be who they are based on our like internal beliefs about what those bodies represent and so this shows up in the the anti-diet and you know weight inclusive space as people really not having access to the same levels of care or the same human rights and the same human dignities based on impressions that we might have about their bodies um you know it's it's this idea that like just how we think about how people live their lives, like looking at someone and thinking we have an idea about how healthy they are, about how much, you know, how involved they are in healthcare or in their wellness. Um, and also just the idea that it's a moral obligation that people be pursuing health altogether. And I feel like we could probably have like 10 conversations about just the roots of stigma related to weight, um, and the roots of anti-fat bias. Um, just you know, given kind of like the historical context within you know anti the anti black movement and and anti racism movements, um, that there is a lot of you know that it is exclusively kind of this like racial origins of oppression around like people's bodies, and so, um. Yeah, how we see that show up in, like, today is really just, like, lack of engagement in healthcare and lack of engagement in feeling safe to pursue health care based on bodies that people show up in. And, you know, it can be things like going to the doctor for migraine headaches and being, you know, in this case, a prescribed Ozempic or, or for for weight change or... You know, not having safe interactions in a dental office or not having safe interactions, you know, in, you know, a therapy session based on body, how bodies show up. And so then not engaging in, in those spaces that might be furthering someone's wellness, but because they don't feel like they're safe to do it. And it doesn't just show up in healthcare. It comes in our entire world. Like we have like so many beliefs about what certain bodies mean and what certain bodies, um, represent and every single one of us has, you know, that implicit bias that exists within us because we're kind of trained in these systems of weight is equal to health. And I know I was, like I went to university for dietetics. I'm a dietitian, and our whole profession is really around the idea of like how we can better someone's health with the things that they eat.
1: No, that's great. And I think It just comes up in so many facets of society, like you said, not exclusively healthcare whatsoever, but really as people go about their day-to-day lives on either side of the coin, it's not something that we can avoid by picking and choosing where we go. It pops up everywhere. And I think just getting on your point about this association that you had in your training about food and weight and fatness. Um... A term that gets thrown around a lot is diet culture, Mm
2: -hmm. and I think
1: diet culture is very pervasive in our society, but again, just to set the stage, I was wondering if you could kind of define diet culture in particular and maybe speak a bit as to what the contributing factors are to this like hyperfixation that we have on diets and weight loss.
2: Yeah, like, I, you know, diet culture itself really is this like umbrella term, I think that encompasses like, the well, the pursuits of wellness from an individual, but also like societal and kind of like systemic pursuit of wellness, and just the like, morality we associate with that. So, you know, even, you know, within kind of like the fat communities, and, and, you know, I think it's important, since we're on a podcast, and people are just listening, but You know, I hold a great deal of privilege in the work that I do, both as, like, a professional. So, like, I have, like, education privilege in that. And also, like, I'm straight-sized. I, you know, the systems of oppression that impact many people, like, I can only speak from, like, what I'm, am my unlearning and my education, but more I like really try to go to like the lived experience of the people that I, that I work with. So I'm not an expert on their lived experience and I can only kind of speak to, to some of the things I observe professionally and, and personally, of course. Um, but yeah, diet culture, this big umbrella of like all of these different like systems that, you know, reinforce the idea that your body is a problem and your problem alone to fix. And if you're not doing everything you can to quote unquote fix your body, which usually means shrink your body, um, you are not as deserving as others of access to like all the different, you know, kind of like parts of the pie chart that makes up a full and complete life. And so, you know, it really kind of moralizes the pursuit of wellness and, has a really great profit along with it because we know, like, you know, the diet industry, which is like a hundred billion dollar plus, like I think Christy Harrison had like a statistic in the trillions for, you know, diet culture and diet industry profit that, you know, we, we like see this kind of like, you know, monetizing people's pursuit and really like blaming people when their bodies don't kind of like fit that mold um, and there's so many factors that contribute. It's, you know, I think like I uh, on one hand like we want to really believe we have control over our health and our bodies. It's a scary thing to think of like be having a disease or having an illness, and um, you know, COVID being a great example over these last like four years. This idea of you know something happening and we don't have control. And so if there's something that is within my control, I'm gonna pursue it. It makes me feel safe and it makes me feel, you know, like I am more in control of of my life than maybe I am. And I think that, you know, diet culture really capitalizes on that and just tells us that these are things that you have control over, so you better do it. And if you don't, you're a less, you know, less deserving person of love or jobs or respect. And then it's, yeah, uh, you know, understandable why people want to do anything they can to, to fit within what that kind of like acceptable mold is.
0: Now that we've discussed the nature and origins of anti-fat bias and discussed the ways diet culture reinforces a focus on weight loss, we asked Ali to help us understand what Ozempic is and how it came to be so widely associated with weight loss, rather than its original design as a drug for treating diabetes.
3: One of those drugs that we've seen that's being popularized is Ozempic. And it falls under this umbrella, I guess, of semaglutide drugs, which were not intended to be used for patients who are losing weight, um, but initially for patients who have diabetes to treat diabetes. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about this class of drugs, and then a little bit on how the idea has
2: come up to maybe use these kinds of drugs for weight loss. We, we prescribe weight loss to people to support so many different conditions and illnesses. And yet we do not have one sustainable way to have people achieve that. And so then on to the market comes a medication that tells us that, yeah, or like that is promoted as being like, yeah, we can help you do that. And some people do find weight loss associated with taking these medications. So yeah, semaglutides, have been used for a very long time for type 2 diabetes. And, you know, they are kind of this, like, class of GLP-1 agonist um, medications. Like, talking to doctors, you probably can speak to that mechanism a little bit better. But essentially how I understand it to work is it mimics these hormones that are released um when we are digesting food and the the hormone itself in part is you know triggers the release of insulin so helps our body to you know normalize and stabilize our blood glucose levels um but then the other side of of how these medications and semaglutide you know works is it slows the the digestion of the food that we've consumed so we're not seeing these like really rapid Rises in blood sugar and then really quick fall down of blood sugar that we're seeing kind of more like rolling hills with a nice kind of prolonged tail so that we're not having, you know, elevated blood glucose levels for a long period of time, which is obviously can be quite harmful in the physical body. So, um, but as this drug was being used, one of the, one of the things they noticed as part of that, like, early satiety sensation or prolonged, um, gastric, like delayed gastric emptying was, weight change or weight loss as a result as a side effect of this and so um you know Ozempic itself is is the medication that is utilized for for blood sugar management and um Wegovy is the you know medic is the name of the use of the semaglutide when used for the pursuit of weight loss and we're just starting to see really preliminary like data, even though they claim they have longitudinal data, like the longest study is 104 weeks, which we know is two years. And if we think about like weight cycling data, we do see that between one and five years is typically when people regain. We definitely have seen weight regain even in people who are taking Ozempic consistently, um, but or sorry, Wagovie consistently, but also we're seeing, you know, when people come off that medication because it is, you know, invasive from like both the perspective of being an injection comes with a lot of side effects, which seem to kind of taper off as people are on them. But for many people, that isn't the case that the weight loss is almost compounded by like the nausea and vomiting or diarrhea or like, you know, gastrointestinal issues that can come along with it. Um, And so as a result, um, people have to stay on the medication kind of forever um, if they want to kind of try to maintain that weight change, which, again, we just don't have long-term data um, for what that looks like.
3: As a dietitian, what do you see has changed in these conversations when people are discussing the use of these drugs in the context of weight loss?
2: I have so much empathy for anyone who wants to pursue, you know, changing their body because we don't really live in a, we don't live in a world that it's safe for all bodies to exist. So, you know, I do see like clients of mine in my private practice, um, that, you know, have either engaged in using these medications or are considering it or are, you know, currently on these medications. And, and of course we can understand why. Like, you know, I think the, the part is like professionals that like we have a, a responsibility is to help our clients and patients make a choice that will promote lifelong wellness and I think that's the part that is getting missed you know they we don't know enough about how these drugs are used as wagobi like as the higher dose because you know when used for diabetes it's like a very clear like step-by-step kind of progression but the the starting dose with wagobi is like much much higher than that Um but like you know we are kind of saying to people like you know, the pursuit of a smaller body is worth any cost financially or with GI symptoms or with any side effect. And so, of course, people who live in larger bodies who are ready are kind of like facing the stigma of a world that believes it's their fault or their choice are going to be really motivated to take something that like seemingly is having kind of like positive results. I think it's probably similar to other times where there have been weight loss drugs that have come on the market or like a seemingly like new quick fix for a diet that just like, you know, keto or a diet that like drops weight really quickly. And um, and yeah, so I think that it makes a lot of sense that we're hearing about it a lot more and that people are wanting to take it because you know, we're told, we're telling them their bodies are a problem. It, it
3: sounds to me like the concept of weight and just like the conceptualization of even obesity, for example, has changed over the years. I know, for example, in 2013, it was classified as like a chronic condition. So I wonder if you can talk a bit about this concept of obesity and fatness and just, um, how we conceptualize it in terms of health a little
2: bit more weight itself is not an independent risk factor for any of these diseases we know weight cycling is like we know that like the constant strain and stress on the physical body of like weight loss and then weight regain you know does put people at at higher risk for a lot of things like irregular blood sugar management elevated cholesterol levels you know all like heart disease you know blood pressure like all these things are impacted greatly by weight cycling but we keep like prescribing to people to change their bodies without a sustainable way to do it um i i personally like many in my field of anti-diet crusades you know find body mass index to be bs um and i find it like incredibly invalidating and, and stigmatizing for people, like this assumption that's made about your body um, because of, you know, the weight that you show up in. We know that weight is greatly impacted by genetics and that there's a genetic disposition for all all types of bodies and sizes to show up on this planet. Um, and that, you know, the, the st- stress and strain of stigma, like just living in a body that you know is judged and you know is unsafe like that that also puts people at greater risk of a lot of these things you know just through even like allosteric load and like the stress and strain on the organ of like living in a body that's not safe and so you know we could talk about like okay why this label helps people but I, I don't think that it does I think that it just gives us sort of like permission to not like dig deeper or like help people understand their bodies and understand that like You know, there is no disease type on this planet that only impacts people in larger bodies. And so if that is the case, like, why do we have empathy for people who are born with diabetes, you know, with, are born with a pancreas that doesn't produce insulin, but we don't have empathy for people who later in life, you know, have a pancreas that doesn't keep up with creating insulin, you know. It's, it's these ideas of like fault and blame that I think are just like so rooted again in systems of oppression and definitely in racism.
1: Certain individuals are more at risk when the topic of weight loss is a focus in the media and in our own day-to-day conversations. We spoke to Allie about her experience working with patients with eating disorders and some additional challenges they may face as weight loss drugs are increasingly accessible. I was curious in in your practice, you're specializing in patients with eating disorders and disordered eating and obviously that's a, a unique patient population. And I was wondering if you have I guess concerns for that particular population with respect to the marketing of Ozempic.
2: 100%. I think anytime we're centering like weight loss as a, as equivalent to health or what you said, like thinness equal to health. Um, I mean, it's problematic for all of us, but definitely a population of people that are at risk of, or, or have eating disorders are really at risk when that is like popular rhetoric that we're chatting about. Um, You know, I think I see firsthand with some of my clients and patients, um, because not all people with eating disorders are in thin or small, smaller bodies, certainly most actually aren't I think it's this, again, kind of like our Hollywood idea of what an eating disorder looks like. But, you know, I think of anything, like, you know, the pursuit of the thin ideal very clearly impacts, you know, people's health and wellbeing. I know like one of the things that people are talking about with Wagovi is that it impacts cravings and so can give kind of like a bit of space for people who engage in binge eating or have, um, you know, engage in that binge like that restrict rebound eat cycle. And so like Again, individual level, I have absolute empathy for if, you know, something that is being kind of like marketed and prescribed to give space in the mind from like the constant torment of an eating disorder. I I absolutely understand why people want to do that. From the perspective of society, like we are telling people that like, at all costs, it's more important to be small or thin or pursue that thinness than anything else. And find it really like challenging working with clients when they are coming off Wagovi or coming off of the, the like Ozepic prescribed for weight loss. Um because all of a sudden this area of the brain that's been like dampened or like quieted, like the hypothalamus, all of a sudden their appetite like resumes. And if they have any vulnerability to binge eating or that restrict binge cycle they're just totally out of control Um, and it's just like totally distressing and again that feeling of like helplessness and hopelessness that comes from disordered eating and eating disorders. The
1: what you mentioned about kind of the this challenge that presents with people who are maybe coming off these drugs and having a lot of new and negative experiences Um, it's interesting like the the sudden like uptick in the use has created these situations for healthcare providers that they haven't necessarily seen before i'm curious if the kind of exposure and marketing of these drugs kind of changes the way that healthcare providers approach patients with who are presenting with disordered eating
2: yeah, I think, you know, we've had lots of conversations kind of within the program that I work at, you know, kind of recognizing that we're going to start to see more and more patients who have some history or connection to these medications. I mean, from an eating disorder treatment perspective, being on a medication that alters your appetite or suppresses your appetite, like isn't conducive for eating disorder treatment or recovery um, because it doesn't allow you space to like learn how to connect to your internal cues. Um but, yeah, like, I think there's a lot more pressure to use these medications. And, again, it's, like, on an individual level, like, it it does reduce people's suffering, you know, to be able to be in a smaller size. Even if it's short term, they're not experiencing the same level of stigma or they're viewed as, like, like you said about like the personal responsibility, right? I can understand why a lot of primary care physicians are are prescribing this medication. I think anyone who has a history of an eating disorder or disordered eating, this is incredibly risky. That being said, like, I think in our world that, you know, romanticizes the thin ideal, it's hard to find people who don't have a history of some form of disordered relationship with food. And yeah, like, we never know what the precipitating factor is going to be to trigger, you know, all of these different puzzle pieces that come into place for an eating disorder. And, and eating disorders are deadly. You know, anti bias is deadly. Like, the stigma that people live in this world with is deadly. And so, you know, the message we're shouting from the rooftops with, like, the advertisements and, like, uh, the nonstop conversation about Wagobi and Azempic is just, like, you know, any of those things are worth it because you might be thin or thinner. Um, So, yeah, like I think people are really grappling with how to utilize these medications. And I think it's important to come from a place of total openness and compassion. Like, I totally understand. I have zero judgment of anyone who wishes to try these medications. I just wish we could do better as a society to not make people feel like they have no choice but to, but to do this, because if you want to do this, that's great. But if you're doing it because you feel so unsafe and you, you know, feel like you're un, undeserving of so many different aspects of wellness and you're and living a full life because we, we, we as a collective, we have told you that then that's really problematic. But I think that like personal responsibility is getting just like a more emphasis, like, you know, If you haven't, if you are, you know, trying to find like a place of acceptance of your body and not wanting to utilize dieting or utilize exercise in a way that's like harmful for you. Now it's like, but have you tried? (laughs) Have you tried this? Like, you know, and so we're kind of like acting like it's like this, this quick fix and it's also a guarantee there's a lot of people who go on these medications for weight loss who actually don't see very much weight loss i know i've said that but like imagine that shame you know imagine that stigma that it's like i'm the person who doesn't respond to this miracle drug you know and so it's not really answering your question but i like i mean i think our the education of people about what really disordered eating and eating disorders look like and how harmful they are maybe would make us Take a second beat before just like blanket prescribing these medications to anyone who lives in a larger body. Um, I just feel like, you know, because of the target audience of your, like of your podcast that we have such an opportunity, like future generations in healthcare to like create a different world, like to see the world differently, to see people differently, to like create safe space for all humans and, You know, if we're telling people to do something that there is no sustainable way to do without harm or without major sacrifices to life or without, you know, having to take a medication forever and ever, um, maybe we could go back to the drawing board and find a different way to support people. It's maybe it's our internal bias that needs to get looked at.
0: Next, we spoke to Dr. Catherine Sabiston, a kinesiologist and Canada research chair in physical activity and mental health, about the roots of weight stigma and its influence on how we feel about ourselves and the intersection of mental health and body related self consciousness.
4: I'm Dr. Catherine Sabiston. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education, and I hold a Canada research chair in physical activity and mental health. My pronouns are she, her we're really interested in weight loss drugs and particularly in the
1: popularization of Ozempic, which has been really dominating the media over the last many months really. Um, And again, it's hard to kind of contextualize this rise in Ozempic popularity without discussing kind of broader conversations and perspectives about weight and health in society. So uh, it's pretty common knowledge Uh, that society has some really negative and damaging stereotypes concerning uh, weight and body size. And a lot of that is founded on this perception of uh, high weight and worse health. So uh, I wanted to start with talking about that kind of broad relationship between weight and health. And I wanted to know if you could kind of speak to that perceived association between weight and body size and health and how this perception manifests in societies and what the consequences are.
4: So, I mean, I think the the link between weight and health has been longstanding. And um, really, it's, it's tied to the idea that if you are in a larger body, that uh, there has to be some health um, consequences from being in a larger body. And yet, when we look at the at, at data across all kinds of different health systems in you know, our bodies, the circulatory system, the muscular system, um, all the different systems, um, we don't find the, the effects that, that these perceptions are, are founded on. And so we don't see that necessarily that being in a heavier body is linked to poor health outcomes um, across a number of different outcomes that have been studied. Um, and we also actually see that sometimes it's more about the ways in which people feel about their body that's more impactful on health outcomes than it is um, their actual weight or the body that they that they're in. And so, um, that historically there's been this connection between weight and health because it is. Um, something that people feel like they can understand. They can understand that um, if you look at someone and they're in a heavier body, that they're likely to be um, unhealthy, that they've chosen to have, you know, and that's a big thing, right? Oh, they've chosen to have a lifestyle that is uh, quote unquote unhealthy, that they eat poorly and that they don't move um, or exercise. And that those are the the two key aspects of, of weight. Um, and so Historically, what we see then is that this manifestation of these perceptions um, transcend all aspects of one's life. And so, um, you know, you mentioned healthcare care settings um, until more recently, you know, every chair in a in a waiting room, for example, were uh, were for smaller people. And so, you know, there's there's these consequences tied to um, this expectation that everybody coming into your office is a certain size. Um, we also don't tend to see heavier bodied athletes. In certain sports, and so in the sporting um, world, um, we tend to say that that body size has been traditionally linked to certain types of sport or certain positions in sport, and so we often hear that. Um, yet, there's no reason why heavier bodied athletes cannot be in any of the sports that we that we have um, accessible to us, and so it continues to perpetuate these perceptions because um the, you know the athletes are not necessarily um driving this change you know we're not seeing a heavier bodied uh, um ballerina for example on a, on a stage and so it's it, until we see more and more of this um those those stereotypes continue to you know permeate our our worlds um and in schools as well you know you see you you, you still see um the um individuals the kids who are ostracized and and made fun of, and that there's lots of comments around the way people look. And so um, a big thing in our, in in Western society in particular is appearance and appearance. One of, the, one of the things that we can see the most is someone's body size. And because of that, it feels like it's the billboard that everybody knows about you. And yet there's, it's very little about what someone is. And so I think that's the, the challenge that we have to try to dispel um, this link between body size and health. Um, and and appearance in general, because there's too much emphasis on it. And, and a lot of the times, it's not in one's control in the first place. Absolutely. And I think you touched on uh, many
1: key points there, but kind of takeaways being number one, an accessibility issue, like the example you gave with small chairs in a doctor's office that are really not built to accommodate someone in a larger body, that's an accessibility issue. And the second being representation that In the many popular sports that exist across our culture, we don't often see athletes in larger bodies in positions where we don't expect it, like ballet, dance, in many different sports. So it kind of gets at two key themes that really run through not only sport and healthcare settings, but trickle down into the day-to-day and the way that we perceive other people.
4: Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're basically prompts in, there's environmental prompts across every sector of our of our society that reminds you of what is expected, and yet these why do we have these expectations in the first place? It's because they have been historically rooted, and not. Um, not um, dispelled and not fought for in in any other way, and so uh, that's the key: is that we 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 act and we behave in ways in which we perceive society to be supportive, and and so one of those is that what we see is is then where, how we're going to act and how we're going to behave, and and we need to start dispelling that. Absolutely, and I think that kind of
1: gets into what I wanted to talk about next with kind of how this trickles down really to the individual level and the way that people really go about their day to days and uh, the various settings and contexts that they find themselves in. So just to kind of set the stage here, I was wondering if you could just explain to our listeners um, what are self-conscious emotions and how they manifest in the context of body image.
4: Um, in our lab specifically, we study we focus on self-conscious emotions because of the importance that they play in, in one's identity and the way that, that people perceive their bodies. And so um, self-conscious emotions are judgment based, um, you know, social emotions that uh, rarely have facial expressions, self-conscious emotions uh, that we are aware of and that we study include shame, guilt, envy, embarrassment, and pride, which is often explored in two different ways. So pride about one's actions, which is authentic pride and pride about oneself, which is considered to be hubristic pride. Um, And so just to give you a little bit of a, of a background on what they are. um, Shame is this, you know, really intense emotion about the self. And so oftentimes um, emotions of shame are, are heavily rooted in, in negative feelings and negative perceptions and oftentimes drive a lot of, you know, sort of more negative outcomes, like poor eating and poor exercise and, and things like that. Um, embarrassment is often discussed as very similar to shame. And then, and then I mentioned the two types of pride, authentic pride being about the behavior. So you're proud of something that you've done, you've eaten healthy that day, um and um hubristic pride is is about yourself your sense of self so we often say that it's sort of this like cockiness or you know um very self confident kind of pride in oneself um so all of those emotions together we study them in the context of both appearance so how the body looks as well as how the body functions and a critical piece around body image is to connect is to continuously remember that the body has those two functions. It's not only how you look, but it's also how you function. And so, in the context of of heavier bodies or or body weight specifically, um, what's critical is to is to remember that the body functions very similarly across all sizes. And so it's about looking at um at, at these emotions tied to both how how one looks and and then how one Functions or, or their fitness sort of function aspects of that.
1: And with respect to kind of, I'll say more than negative uh, body-related self-conscious emotions, uh, based on, on your research and literature available, do we know kind of the, the main source of those negative um, body-related self-conscious emotions? Is it mostly considered to be intrinsic or extrinsic?
4: So there's a number of different factors that come to play when, when one experiences these emotions Um, and these emotions can be both trait. So very stable, you know, you have a propensity to feel more negative or positive emotions as well as more state, which is in the moment I feel, you know, these emotions. So um, from the literature around like factors that link to both these Um, Well, at least these trait measures of emotions, it would be tied to more, um, you know, one sense of self, um, uh, a big predictor of these emotions is tied to whether um, how one wants to wants to look versus how they do look so that discrepancy between the um, ideal and actual self are drives those emotions, um, as well as, you know, a, a number of different identity factors and then um the specific emotions in the moment emotions you know can be anything from you know the social ne- network that one is in so the the type of people that you're around in the moment um the you know the the sources of of um I'll say media because that's the big one sources of social media and traditional media and you know i think also what's really critical is um It starts in the schools where um, textbooks, for example, do not tend to put pictures of heavier bodied individuals in the textbooks. So from a very early age um, and We've done some research now to look at even where people are drawing images from, so that there is a diversity of bodies represented in, you know, presentations in Google Classroom in these textbooks. And as of, you know, now there really isn't any kind of, um, you know, policy around including a diversity of bodies. And so, even in the education system, we're perpetuating this, you know, idealized body um, for both males and females because of the way in which um, they're represented in images in in all these different areas. That's so interesting because
1: I feel like what comes to mind, obviously, when you think about what people are seeing and how that affects their emotions, we think about social media. It's so ubiquitous and becoming more and more common for young children and teens, especially to be on all sorts of different social media platforms. But it's so interesting that you talk about textbooks which I really didn't even think about there's so many images across all subjects there's people represented in in textbooks and in presentations and it's kind of a it keeps a constant flow even you know you assume that your kids are mostly off social media when they're in school but they're i guess bombarded with other forms of of media that perpetuate similar Things to what they see online.
4: And I would also just add just it, you know, anecdotally or interestingly, when we've tried to do some of our research where we want to include um, a diversity of bodies in in um, image representations, um, to be able to find um, a heavier bodied woman is quite easy to find online. There's there's many. Um, to find a heavier bodied man, we have tended to have to go to the, you know, pre-images of someone on a weight loss journey, for example, which, you know, is 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 not where you want to be. Um, but to find um, so I I think there's a lot of 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 um information there alone that we continuously say, like, where are these images of people in diverse bodies?
1: I think it's it's so it's so pervasive. It speaks to how these things kind of sneak their way into every little corner like textbooks. It, it's not something that really comes to mind when you think about it, but it, it's true. I was wondering if we could shift a little bit um, to talk about mental health um, and this association between uh, negative body-associated emotions and mental health, which uh, might seem um, like, a, like a clear association, but I was wondering if you could speak to a little bit based off your own research as well, what that association looks like.
4: So what we try to to highlight in the work that we do is that there really is no disconnect between mental health and body image, negative body image specifically. And so um, across the board, we see that any of the mental health indicators that we study, including depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, um, um, stress levels, for example, are all um, at least moderately, if not sometimes highly correlated to body related shame, guilt, uh, embarrassment are the key um, drivers of of mental health. And so um, it's really important that we don't lose sight of the link between um, the way people feel and, and mental health. And so Oftentimes, we don't see enough resources being built around this idea that you have to deal with how someone feels about their body um, before you can fully deal with mental health at a broader level. And so the foundations of, of mental health are really you know one with body image and especially those you know the 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 stronger negative emotions like shame and guilt and and embarrassment are are some of the ones that we really do see connected to mental health and we see that these emotions are actually more important for quality of life well-being and um self-reported physical health and mental health than the physiological markers of what you know quote unquote someone might say would be um negative health indicators i was wondering. With respect to, again, that kind
1: of period of adolescence, the the factors that maybe contribute to that being kind of a critical time where there's it, there becomes maybe more of like a hyperfixation on body image, body size, uh, and and weight specifically, and what kind of about that um, about that period kind of makes this like a critical point in time.
4: A lot of factors tied to, um, you know, I guess both the, the ways in which the bodies are changing at, at that critical point of adolescence. So puberty. Um, for boys, puberty actually, uh, sort of helps their bodies become closer to the, the quote unquote media idealized body. Um, you know, their, their, their bodies change in a way that, that actually helps them. Um, for girls, puberty is a disaster, you know, it, it completely, um, changes the way the body looks that it changes the way that, um, fat mass sits. Um, it, it changes their bodies from one in which, um, quite similar to an idealized body um with very little shape to one with lots of shape and and there's not a lot of resources that help um girls feel good in those changed bodies because of all of the you know media and and society and expectations of what bodies should look like and so um we often see that that puberty and body changes are critical to these emotions we also see that um um, the the social environment. So for girls, um the social environment is really important, you know, peers and friends. And it's not that it's not important for boys, but it's really important for girls. And so um the the social environment and and the the physical uh changes to the body are two of the most critical factors that that um link to these negative emotions and the experience of them. In addition to um Growing up in an environment where there's a focus on body um, appearance. And so um, oftentimes, we have identified that, um, you know, girls and boys, there's often this, this idea that they perform differently, that boys have different skills than girls and can perform differently. And yet, what we tend to see is that it's not that there's an actual gender difference in the way skills are performed, but actually that girls are socialized to put so much emphasis on the way that they look that their attention is, is, um, watered down for the task at hand. And it started with, you know, more, um, the early research in this space was that if you had women wear a really big sweater and do a math test, they perform better than if they did the math test in a bathing suit. And so this work, we're, we're continuously um, um, finding the same sort of findings with all of the different work that we're doing to say that, you know, if people are in comfortable clothing versus tight and revealing clothing, that they perform better. And so um, again, like environments, the clothing that people wear, the the trends of, of, of um, what people are cool wearing, you know, all of that doesn't change when you're, you know, day to day as an adolescent. And so Um, all of these, the environments that you're in, the type of feedback you get, the types of people that make comments about, you know, in sports specifically, we hear all the time from the, from the stands, people yelling comments about how someone looks versus how they're performing. And so all of these things uh, continue to, you know, really be that foundation on these emotions.
1: It's so jarring to have those kinds of things kind of laid bare, which is like, the idea of what would I do or what could I do if I didn't feel like I was really being watched and being judged particularly about your physical appearance and it's so it's so sad to think that you know and what you're what you feel that you're able to do or the way that you're able to perform in something totally unrelated to the way that you look could be so heavily influenced and I think it, it reminds me of how you explained kind of the the two facets of how people feel about their body being one how it's functioning and the things that it's able to do versus the way that it looks and the fact that one can be so critically influential on the other and in such a negative way is is so interesting and again like really speaks to the importance of counteracting this hyperfixation counteracting the influences that Kind of shape our thinking as it relates to to body size something that i've noticed as someone who's act, does spend quite a lot of time on social media and watching television uh with respect to weight loss drugs and particularly Ozempic, is that we've just seen so much marketing and i was just wondering from your perspective how that type of mass marketing and that really uh Putting weight loss drugs uh, in in front of people's eyes in a way that's very accessible, that people see them all the time, how that contributes to negative body-related emotions and societal weight stigma.
4: It contributes a ton because it's normalizing um, a a very quick fix to uh, an appearance and a body-size you know, "quote unquote" problem. So the fact that there it, it's even considered a problem in the first place is a challenge because, as we've said, you know, um, a diversity of body sizes is is also really important to see. Um, the um, the idea that mo- many of the images for the billboards like Ozempic have heavier bodied individuals in them, um, so there's a, a an automatic um, uh, connection between what you're seeing. And what this drug is going to do in terms of weight loss. Um, it's a it's a quick fix. And so people like that. It's and it's completely normalized um the 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 idea of using a drug to lose weight. Um, and so because of that, like the the crux of the problem is not solved. We're not helping people feel and see a diversity of bodies in any of these spaces. And so it's it's continuously um going to contribute to the way in which people feel about their bodies and, and these emotions because of the normalization of it. And so in a similar way to, you know, the normalization of how we see women athletes, for example, in social media and how, um, you know, you, you see, um, women who, uh, or you see comments about how they look versus how they perform, you know, the same sort of thing it, with Ozempic. It's like the weight loss aspect is so, um, is so much the focus, and the normalization process that you lose sight of of um, you know, just the ways of of supporting people in their bodies and in the ways that they are. It's really ah an unfortunate environment in that way, um because, it, we don't know a lot about these weight loss drugs long term. You know, there's still so much yet to be known. And so people draw, are drawn to these quick fixes for, for body weight. And yet, again, we're not helping. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that people who are in a heavier body and lose a lot of weight actually prefer to be in their heavier bodies once they've lost the weight because it it completely changes their identity and and their identity your your structure of yourself the way you feel about yourself is should not be tied to how much you weigh and your body size and so until we can try to you know continue to dr- to drill that message um these kind of quick fixes are just going to continue and and again people don't we don't know if people are if it's really going to help the way people feel about themselves and i think that's such a key
1: Takeaway with respect, you know, we talked a lot and think a lot about how have you the association between body size or heavy body size and, and mental health, but that association is very complex and influenced by so many factors that the the, the shrinking of a body size does not equate to good mental health, and I think that's a really important takeaway.
4: I mean, I think the biggest thing is is that we have to continue as a society to to um, to fight the stereotypes and the stigmas, and to do that in a way that that supports you know individuals of every body size as one of the you know identity factors that's that's so critical. Um, but also to highlight that it that appearance does not equal um, you know, an identity either, and so you know, the, it's about the way that the body functions is critical, and so to help people, what we've found is that helping people um, put more emphasis on how the body functions than how it looks is 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 critical, and so you know, practicing self care strategies to to really try to um, connect the the body function and um and mental health and physical health are so important to um to drive this change and so you know it's not again those you know ozempic type um Uh, billboards we don't see the same type of messaging around just take care of yourself like you know practice self-care strategies that are important for you and your mental health and and those are where we have to move towards in order to really start dispelling this you know these um stereotypes and stigmas around body size
1: thank you to our guests ali eberhardt and dr Catherine Savison for sharing their knowledge and perspectives and thank you for listening this episode was hosted by myself, Hannah, and Noor. Zane was our promotions lead, Reina was our audio engineer, and Noor was our executive producer.
0: We would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. We would also like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.